Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we are going to spend our time this morning exploring verses 15 to 18 of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware! lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. While it is absolutely true and perfectly clear that, as James wrote in James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at, in one point has become guilty of all of it, meaning that one single violation of God's holy, perfect will, one single disobedience to His command is met or is enough to damn the soul to an eternity of his wrath. And while it is true that every single sin committed by every single human being who has ever lived is an odious, repulsive, foul, contemptible affront to the living God, when we read the scriptures, the sin of idolatry seems to stand out as a particularly wicked and hideous evil. The ferocity with which the Lord repeatedly and relentlessly commanded the Israelites to keep themselves from idolatry, and the Lord's sustained mockery of idols and those who bow down to them, the Lord's mockery of the gods of the nations, of all the so-called gods created and worshipped by man, the Lord God, through His prophets, would ridicule and deride and pour contempt on the fake gods of the nations along with those who worship them. Because as the Lord makes clear through His Word over and over again, a couple of examples being Isaiah 45 verse 5, where the Lord says, I am the Lord, there is no other, besides me there is no God. Or Isaiah 42 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. When it comes to the Lord's discussion or speaking to us on idolatry, the shocking, unnerving, and sometimes to our ears obscene language 
and pictures and illustrations that the Lord uses to explain and to describe the atrocity and monstrosity that is idolatry is unlike any other transgression in Scripture. Now, I'm going to read for you an excerpt from one of the prophets. It is an R-rated excerpt found in Ezekiel chapter 23. This is the Lord's picture and description of what idolatry is from his perspective. Listen to this. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. There, their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosoms handled. Ahola was the name of the elder and Aholibah the name of her sister. They became mine and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ahola is Samaria and Aholibah is Jerusalem. Ahola played the whore while she was mine and she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, warriors clothed in purple, governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her whoring upon them, the choicest men of Assyria, all of them, and she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone after whom she lusted. She did not give up her whoring that she had begun in Egypt, for in her youth men had lain with her and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. Therefore I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians after whom she lusted." Do you see the picture here? The Lord will go on in this very chapter to describe the whoring and the lusting of Aholabah, which is Jerusalem, with even more vivid and more disturbing and more startling imagery. See, the idolatry of Israel and Jerusalem is illustrated by the Lord as two whoring sisters who opened their beds to anyone who passed by. You see, idolatry in the Lord's estimation spiritual, uh, is spiritual adultery against himself. It's the opening of one's metaphorical bed to others. And it's pictured in Scripture, not once, not twice, but many times, as a woman betrothed to her husband, but leaves the door of her house open as men pass the street and says, come in, come in, share my bed with me, enter my bedroom and shamelessly corrupt me, debase me, and whore with me. Enter into my chambers, any and all comers. No other sin is described in such language. No other sin is described in such an alarming manner which goes to show you and I just how serious this particular abomination that is idolatry is. Again, all sin is contemptible and evil, but idolatry seems to be set apart in terms of its descriptions throughout Scripture. Idolatry is one of, if not the gravest and most warned against sin in all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And the Lord is supremely strict, inflexible, and unyielding in his prohibition of it. When the Lord delivers the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and in Exodus chapter 20, the first and second commandments are these. You remember them. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's the first two commandments. They deal with idolatry. Idolatry in all its forms is a wickedness, it's an evil, it's an abomination to the Lord, and all throughout Scripture it provokes the holy, righteous, awful anger of the Lord. And for this reason, the Lord with unmistakable clarity and intensity commanded His people Israel to all those from that day to this who would claim to be His followers in verse 15 of chapter 4 in Deuteronomy, watch yourselves carefully. You see that? Watch yourselves carefully. This is in reference to idolatry. This is in reference to service to other gods, whether they be the carved images of the nations or any other person, belief, or thing that competes with your full heart's devotion to the Lord, to the living God. Whatever it is that competes in your heart for primacy with the Lord, Whatever it is that causes your heart to be divided in its loyalty and trust to the Lord. Watch yourselves very carefully, he says in verse 15. Meaning, be attentive. This is something that we ought to be hyper-focused on. Guarding ourselves against. Keeping vigilant watch for. As we... uh, meditate on Scripture and look at the affections of our heart. We must at all times, like the psalmist Asaph, persist in reminding ourselves of this truth in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. We always must be aware of the temptations that are constantly assailing you and I, that are trying to turn our eyes and turn our hearts and turn our affections away from the Lord. For this reason, Moses will say, watch yourselves very carefully. That word very there means with a heightened sense and a particularly rigid and inflexible care. Show respect for your eternal soul by staying as far away from the worship of others, of of idols as you can. As far away from respecting other idols and the gods of the nations as you can. So in the context of Deuteronomy, the idols in question were indeed the carved images. The carved images that would be set on a mantle and worshipped by the individual person within the nations that surrounded Israel. But ancient Israel was commanded to watch themselves, to keep themselves from worshipping anything or anyone other than or besides the Lord, the very Lord who delivered them with mighty outstretched arm from their enslavement in Egypt. And he called them to remember this fact in verse 15, if you look, You saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. When he says this, what he's telling the Israelites is that any image, 
any likeness that humanity might create will always fall infinitely short of the Lord's true nature. And the Lord makes this clear throughout Scripture. In Acts 7.46, we read, the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. If heaven is his throne and the earth is his his footstool, what inside of heaven or earth could adequately describe him? And he declared through King David in Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah as well, Do I not fill heaven and earth? Meaning, and you would seek to reduce me to something within creation as an image for you to bow down to? It's impossible. You can't. The Lord, the living God, is infinitely greater than anything in creation. The living God is infinitely greater than all creation combined. And would his people attempt to whittle him down to an image? Would his people foolishly believe that they could whittle him down and carve out a little thing in the shape of an animal or a bird or a fish? The answer through history is yes, humanity would be foolish enough to do that over and over and over again, even though the Lord said don't. And here's an example. As Israel sat at the foot of Horeb, or Mount Sinai, Moses went up onto the mountain to receive the law from the Lord. But after being up there for a prolonged period of time, the people of Israel gathered themselves together to Aaron in Exodus 32 and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron received gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Again, later on in Israel's life, after the the kingdom divided into two, Judah and Israel, the king of Israel, in order to keep his people from going back to Jerusalem to make sacrifices and to observe the festivals that had been ordained for them by the Lord, we read in 1 Kings, he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you've gone to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So when Israel sought to put some sort of form to the Lord, the God with great power, who with great power delivered them from bondage in Egypt, what did they choose? Cows. In the early stage, it was one cow. After the divided kingdom, it was two. Have you ever seen cows? I mean, they're nice animals, but they put their tongues inside their nose. And this is what people chose to reflect God. It falls infinitely short. Again, in reality, there is nothing in all of creation that one could fashion into an image that adequately displays the fullness that is our God. And for this reason, the prophet Isaiah would cry out over idolatrous Israel in chapter 40, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what 
likeness compares with him? The implied answer is there are no created likenesses that compare with him. There is, at that time, nothing in creation that adequately presented him to the peoples in his glory. And again, the Lord would ask Israel the same question in Isaiah 40. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow weary, faint or weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. So what image is there? Or what can you carve out and say, here it is, this is the Lord, the God who brought us up out of Egypt. There is not one. So Israel, verse 16 of Deuteronomy 4, beware lest you act corruptly. Beware that you do not act in this immoral, ruinous, and evil manner by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And we are going to look at this subject of idolatry from a number of different vantage points and from a number of different angles as we work through the book of Deuteronomy because it is reiterated over and over and over again. So this morning we're going to look at one of the primary reasons for this prohibition. We'll cover the others as we move forward, but I want to consider what we learn in the le- Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers who were struggling with, the, with what to do when it comes to eating meat offered to pagan idols or in pagan idols. See, in the Corinthian church, there were a number of Christians, those who had turned to Jesus Christ by grace through faith, out from paganism, and they still hadn't gotten to the point in their Christian development or maturation where they could not be fearful of the pagan gods that they left behind. And so the old practices loomed large, and their consciences were very, very sensitive to paganism and idolatry. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, the apostle Paul wrote to them, saying, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. You see that? An idol has no real existence existence. So idolatry is forbidden because there is nothing in all of creation to which the Lord can be compared. Idolatry is forbidden because it is a wicked and abominable sin, and idolatry is forbidden because it is forsaking the living God, the God who exists, the God who created everything, and turning to images that have no real existence. At best, they have no real existence. At worst, they're demonic. I have, over the last 20 years, been fortunate enough to travel to Japan twice. And as a tourist there, one of the things that you do in Japan is you visit World Heritage Sites, historical sites. And while these sites are, for the most part, attractions for various reasons. Some of the attractions are because it's the oldest wooden building in the world. It's 13, 14, 1500 years old and still standing. Quite impressive. 
the history of all of these buildings are deeply intertwined with their Buddhist and Shinto roots. And so wherever we visited, right, I remember visiting some of the medieval castles. I can remember walking the grounds of these different sites and being quite unsettled by the number of statues littering all the grounds. Ancient statues, all of which were carved to represent some sort of small g god or guardian of and to and for the gods. In almost every historical site, there were carved images, idols, and statues all over. And that, that's not unique to Japan. It's uh, in many countries in the world where Christianity has, is not the religion for the founding documents or the historically dominant religion. But I, remember, I recall walking through the grounds as a tourist, seeing all of these images, all of which were designed or meant to represent some God, and thinking to myself, there actually is no place where any of these representations, any of these so-called gods actually exist in the manner that they are presented here. There's no actual God behind that idol, that statue, or that image that corresponds to that statue. The idol merely represents the imagination of the one who carved it. And perhaps, as the Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 10, the demon who deceived the carver of that idol. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we read this. What pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The answer is no. So when you go back to the city of Corinth and you realize it was a hotbed of pagan temples, a hotbed of sacrifices and pagan activity, each temple around the city, of which there were many, centered on some statue or some representation of a god that is a part of the Greek or Roman pantheon. Temples with Zeus or Jupiter, Hermes, Ares, Artemis, Diana, and thousands of others were littered across the city, and people would go there and worship. And so some of the new believers that had turned to Christ from paganism in Corinth newly saved from the worship of idols, brought from darkness to light as they turned to Jesus Christ for salvation by grace through faith in His name, they hadn't yet, like I said, progressed to a more mature state of belief where they didn't fear or their conscience wasn't beat up over the idols that they once served. And they still were debating whether those idols reflected some sort of reality. And so Paul wrote to them, Guys, An idol has no real existence. Any of the carved images and likenesses that you see, whether they be a man or a woman or a beast or a bird or a fish or any sort of animal-human hybrid, they have no real existence. So what does that mean? It means, yes, sure, there is an idol there that stands in the temple as a statue, but in no way, shape, or form does that statue reflect any sort of reality. Zeus does not exist, nor does Olympus, where the people suppose that he did exist. 
An idol has no real existence is another theme that is consistent throughout Scripture. So this morning, I want to walk through a few texts that support this truth. Because idolatry and idolaters still infect and impact the world that we live in. Both in the sense of bowing down to carved idols, believing that they represent reality or that there's some God that they represent that can impact and affect your life, but also in the West, in a more sophisticated way, those who have, we've put images away, but we still worship idols nonetheless, don't we? They may not be carved, they may not be on our mantle, maybe they are, but we still worship silver, gold, power, anything, those types of things. Idolatry is a consistent temptation to humanity. And for this reason, the Apostle John would end his first letter with these words, Little children, keep yourself from idols. An idol's lack of any real or true existence is a truth that is repeatedly addressed and or proven throughout the Old Testament by the Lord's divine mockery of those who engage in such practices in ways that will probably make you flinch. As people who live in the modern Western world and are convinced that the greatest offense that one could give is to offend another person, then the most grievous of cultural sins would be God's mockery of someone's deeply held belief. In our day, we even have religious leaders, those who claim to be Christian, seeking to engage in what we would call interfaith dialogue. But not for the sake of witnessing to those who are trapped and enslaved to the demonic realm, who are trapped and enslaved to the idols and the false gods of the nations, but in order to hold hands and walk together with them in peace and unity and coexistence. We are not called to that, nor are we permitted to respect and to clasp hands with people who are deluded and deceived by Satan. We do not respect the idols of the nations. We do not respect the gods, the false gods who hold the people that serve them in darkness, who are conducting those souls to an eternal hell. Our duty and our role is not to clasp hands and walk with them. It is to call them with great clarity and boldness and passion out from the darkness that they find themselves in and into the marvelous light of salvation in Christ. We do not clasp hands with Hindus. We do not clasp hands with Muslims or Buddhists and go on our merry way thinking, well, we agree on this political issue, so everything's good. No, we expose the foolishness of their idols. And some of you are probably right now thinking, that is harsh. Who do you think you are? And I get that. It is, by the world's definition, mean. It is, by the world's definition, intolerant. And so if that's you, if you're feeling that this morning, let's have a little bit of a conversation. Let us explore, if you take seriously God's word as the authority in your life, let us explore and reveal the disposition of God in his written word towards those who embody idols, serve idols, and create idols. 
The first case to look at is this, Pharaoh. In Exodus chapters 1 to 15, Pharaoh is not a statue or a carved image himself. According to Egypt, though, he reflected the idols that the average Egyptians would visit at their local temples, at their local shrines. Pharaoh embodied the images that would be put on their mantles at home. And Pharaoh himself would claim a divinity and a power even greater than Yahweh, the living God, the God of Israel. And the Egyptian peoples agreed, Pharaoh, he is himself the physical representation of the two most powerful gods in Egypt, Horus and Ra. But the truth is, as the Lord declares, Ra and Horus do not exist. They have no real existence. They are powerless demonic deceptions. All the statues in Egypt, all the shrines in Egypt, all the carved idols in Egypt don't have any basis in reality. They are, along with their earthly representation, Pharaoh, mocked by the Lord for this reality or for this truth. Look at Exodus chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, where here the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that or so that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that or so that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So did you catch that? The Lord declares for the third time in the narrative that he is responsible for hardening Pharaoh's heart. And he does this for a few reasons. First, so that Hebrew parents would tell their children and their grandchildren about how the Lord dealt harshly with the Egyptians. The ESV uses harshly, but that word has a wide range. And if you look at your different translations, you'll see different um, translations of that word because it's a bigger word. The LSB would say severely, The NASB will say, how I made a mockery of the Egyptians. The NET will say, how I made fools of the Egyptians. All of those are appropriate translations of that word. This is the content, said the Lord, of the message I want you, parents, to pass on to future generations of your children. I want you to tell them that the gods of Egypt are nothing They are worth nothing. They're worth nothing more than being mocked. They are worth only worth being made fools of because there's no reality to them. They don't exist. They can never truly answer when called upon because they have no true existence. There is only one true God, the living God, the God of Israel. And Pharaoh represents a unique case as Egypt considered Ra to be the most powerful of the gods. And so Egypt was full of humongous temples and statues dedicated to him. The people actually believed that the royal family in Egypt descended from Ra. So God's dealings with Pharaoh were special and unique in that sense. The Lord would mock Ra and, or, uh, Pharaoh and by so doing mock Ra and show that this so-called God, the one they believe whose heart determined all of reality, Egypt believed Pharaoh's heart determined reality, 
And God mocks their entire system by hardening Pharaoh's heart. What kind of supreme God is powerless to control the inner workings of his own heart? One who doesn't exist. And so the Lord displayed to Israel his own power, his own supremacy, and the reality that he is powerful over all the imaginary gods in Egypt, from the smallest idol to the most powerful in the pantheon. In the end, the, this mockery of Egypt's idol and the display that they had no real power or existence was proven when the gods were unable to dispense the blessings in the very areas over which they were supposed to have domain. The Nile was considered an idol and a god in, it, in itself, dispensing the favors of abundance and fertility and blessing. And guess what God did to it? Turned it into blood. And it was no longer able to dispense those favors because the Lord determined it to be so. The domain of Ra was the sun. And in the ninth plague, the sun disappeared from over Egypt for three long days. And replaced, the Lord replaced it with a darkness. And the text tells us it was a darkness so thick you could feel it. Or on the night of the Passover, when gods, the gods of Egypt could not protect the firstborn throughout the nation from death at the hands of the destroying angel. What kind of gods did Egypt serve? Powerless, non-existent gods worthy of nothing more than to be mocked. Israel, when you tell your children about the gods of Egypt, tell them how I mocked them. That doesn't sound right to our ears, right? Our modern Western ears. But it doesn't end there. Consider Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in uh, 1 Kings 17. The people of Israel were engaged at that time in idolatrous worship of the Canaanite god Baal, whose name, ironically enough, means the god who rides on the clouds, a term designating the fact that they believed Baal controlled the skies, he controlled the bounty of the skies, he controlled the rain and everything else. And throughout this narrative, we realize Baal is nothing. He's powerless. He's non-existent because God is the one who releases the bounty from the skies. That's God's domain, not anyone else's. And so Jezebel, the wicked queen, labored during her days to increase among the people of Israel Baal worship. And in response, the Lord sent a prophet named Elijah to the king with a concerning prophetic word in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. And he said, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, did you catch that? The prophet Elijah, in the name of the Lord, in the name of the living God, the God who actually exists, challenges Baal and worshipers of Baal to who, uh, an area that was supposedly Baal's very own domain. The gauntlet has been thrown down, and the question is this, who is God truly? Who truly possesses the power to dispense the blessings from the skies or to shut the skies up? Who's who has power in their hand to hold back the dew or to send the rain? Baal, who really doesn't exist, or the Lord, the living God? And for three years... 
Not a single drop of rain fell in Israel. For three years, not a single drop of dew formed on a blade of grass across Israel. And it was after three years, which should have been enough to prove to Ahab once and for all that the Lord was God, right? It was after three years, Elijah came, returned, and called for a contest. A challenge between the God that Elijah served and the God that the 450 prophets of Baal in Israel served. And the terms of the challenge were set. The God who answers their, his prophet or prophets by fire from the sky, again, the domain of Baal, right, supposedly, that he is the true God. And the terms are agreeable to the prophets of Baal, and they said, it's well spoken. Or in other words, let's do it. And so the contest was set up. So Elijah called upon the 450 prophets of Baal, you guys go first. And the text tells us in 1 Kings 18, they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after, the custom, after their custom with swords and with lances until blood gushed out upon them, meaning they were covered with blood. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, meaning the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Did you notice the repetition? When you read scripture and the author repeats himself, stop and reflect upon the repetition because it's something the author wants you to understand. And what was the repetition? There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Why? Why was there no voice? Why did no one answer? Why did no one pay attention? Because Baal doesn't exist. Baal does not have any real existence. It's merely a representation of people's imagination carved into stone, wood, and a figment of the crafter's imagination made into a 3D statue for placement on a shrine or on a table. There's nothing behind the statue. The idol does not represent a real being. There is no Baal, at least not in the way that the prophets think. Baal is simply a demonic deception inspired by the demonic realm. And when you serve him, you serve Satan himself. And Satan is not able to challenge or to overpower the Lord. When the Lord says, you sit here, devil, the devil sits there obediently. So what does Elijah do as the 450 prophets of Baal wail and cry aloud and shout and limp around for hours, covering themselves in blood according to their religious customs? Does he begin engaging them in interfaith dialogue? Does he speak polite words? No, he mocks them. He mocks Baal in the sight of all the people, so that they might grasp the truth of what is happening here. But all doesn't exist. And in an attempt to show the foolishness of serving a non-existent deity over the Lord, the living God, Elijah mocks, listen to 1 Kings 18, 27. Listen to the words of God's prophet, Elijah. 
cry aloud, meaning yell louder, for he is a God, right? Either, or perhaps, he's musing, or he's relieving himself, meaning maybe he's off going to the bathroom, or he's on a journey, or maybe he's asleep and he must be awakened. In other words, where is your God? What's Baal doing? Why isn't he answering all of this ranting and all of this raving? Yell louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's got too much wax in his ears. Maybe he's deep in thought. Maybe he's indisposed. Maybe he's in the washroom with the door closed. Did he go on a long journey? Did he fall asleep? Did he stub his toe? Who knows? Come on, yell louder to get his attention. And all of this mockery led to an even more frenetic crying out among these prophets, proving Elijah's point all the more as they yelled louder and louder and louder and louder. There was no voice. No one paid attention. Fire didn't descend from the sky. Why? Because Baal is not real. He doesn't exist. 1 Kings 18 ends with the Lord answering Elijah's simple prayer. Lord, woof, fire comes down from heaven. You see, Baal is not the Lord of the sky. Baal is not the God of the clouds. Baal doesn't exist. The Lord, He is God of heaven and earth. The Lord, He is God over every single aspect of creation. The Lord is the sovereign over everything. So Israel, worship Him and worship Him alone. Church, worship Him and worship Him alone. And that truth doesn't end with Baal. It extends to every single conception of God that is not fully and completely expressed and revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is, according to the New Testament, the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus is the one in whom all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, according to Colossians 1. Hebrews 1 tells us Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The New Testament tells us that it is Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power and it is Jesus Christ by virtue of his being truly God took upon himself the penalty for the sins of his people in order to save them. All who believe in Jesus... All who have faith in Jesus, all who serve Jesus and obey Jesus and pray to Jesus, all of you who do that, you are serving the one true God, the God who exists, the God who hears, the God who answers, the God who is so close to you that he answers when you call. He pays attention to you. He speaks to you by his word. The same cannot be said for any idea of God that is not centered on the person of Jesus Christ. So any God, this means any God, small g, that is not defined and revealed by the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, truly God, truly man, is a false, non-existent God. Listen to me clearly here. Allah doesn't exist He is a demonic deception. And you might hear things like modern day Islam is an Abrahamic religion. It's not. That is a demonic deception. I challenge you 
to go and find any connection through history between Abraham and Islam. You will hear people say things like, Ishmael, the son of Abraham, is the father of the Arabs and therefore the father of Islam. That's not true. There's no history. That is echo logic. The reason we believe that is because we have been told that without any sort of historical backing. I challenge you to look for any historical connection between Ishmael and the Arabs and the Muslims. The first time you see it in history is under a Jewish philosopher named Josephus who kind of cobbled things together for the purpose of making a genealogy. There's no proof behind his genealogy. And guess when the next time you hear it is? When Muhammad claims it in the year 700. And why did he claim it? For a couple of reasons. He claimed it to ensure that the Islamic people would be able to lay claim to the land, being children of Abraham. And they also claimed it in order to lay hold of promises that are of prophetic words for Messiah in the Old Testament, that they could take those and then turn them to Muhammad. Demonic deceptions. Allah does not exist. Islam is not an Abrahamic religion. It is a satanic deception. The same can be said with uh, Hinduism. Brahman or Shiva or any of the other Hindu gods and idols and statues, they do not exist. They're false gods. The cosmic force that is Buddhism, the state of nirvana that's supposedly attained by those memorialized in the statues, the, the bodhisattvas and the Buddhas and all of that, it doesn't exist. They're false conceptions of divinity. The tribal gods to which people bow all across the world do not exist. They are all demonic deceptions. And when all who serve and bow down to these gods call out to them, guess what? There are no voices. No one is listening. No one is paying attention. Which is why the Great Commission is the marching order of the church. Because we want all people everywhere to call out to a God who listens to them. We want all people to have the ear of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul would write to the Galatian believers in Galatians 4 saying this, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are no gods. So there is an enslaving power in worshiping false gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. So how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Even in the New Testament, Paul says, those gods that you once served, they're weak and they're worthless. Whose slaves you want to be once more? So those adherents to idols and false gods all over the world, those who do not know the true God, who aren't known by God, are enslaved to that which by nature are not gods, they are, according to Paul, enslaved to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, enslaved to mere blocks of wood and stone. And that's why Christ came. That's why Christ sends you and I out into the world to proclaim the gospel to the world, to bring the news, the good news of liberty and freedom from enslavement to weak, worthless elementary principles of the world. There's a reason the Apostle Paul would write in Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, the good news, the gospel, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. 
Salvation is freedom in Christ. Salvation is forgiveness of sin. Salvation is relationship with and adoption into the family of the one true living God. So this idea of idols having no real existence, it's consistent throughout Scripture. And the Lord does not call, uh, he does, he's not ashamed of the fact that those gods are mocked. We've looked at Pharaoh. We've looked at Elijah's confrontation with Baal. Now let us turn our attention to the actual words of the Lord through his prophets regarding, the, regarding idols. Because, like we said earlier in Isaiah 42.8, the Lord says this, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Meaning, idol worship is an offense to God. God will not share his glory or his praise with any other. All praise, all honor, all service, all exaltation, all obedience is due to the Lord, the one true God who is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And it is to him alone. And for this reason, the Lord will speak quite directly and even harshly to both idols and those who serve them. Listen to Isaiah 41. In the context of Israel's idol worship, the Lord said this through, that, through his prophet. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things that are to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed or terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So the Lord, for the first 20 verses of this chapter, tells Israel about the joy of serving Him. He told them of His commitment to their protection and their good, so why not serve Him? And then, starting in verse 20, He calls upon those who serve idols to set forth their case for doing so, asking them, are your, are your idols able to do for you what I can do, what I will do for you? Are your idols, do your idols, ask them, do you know what's going to happen? Let your idols declare to you things that have already happened. Let them tell you something, anything. You know what? Surely they know, right? No, they don't. They can't tell you anything. They have no voice. Call upon your idols, O Israel, to do something. Call upon them to do something good, even something bad. So that people might see and be afraid. Israel, it's not going to happen. Because your idols are nothing. The works of an idol are less than nothing. That's an interesting phrase, right? Less than nothing. The works of an idol cannot even qualify as nothing. And in a terrifying statement, the Lord through Isaiah pronounces judgment not only on the idols themselves, but on those who choose to serve idols over the Lord. An abomination is he who chooses you. You see that? The Lord gets even clearer in chapter 44 of Isaiah, saying this. This is a longer section, so. It says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know, that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? 
Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it and planes it and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and he falls down before it. He roasts it and is satisfied. Oh, over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warns himself saying, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire, and I baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat, and I've eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? That is divine mockery at its best. The Lord mocks the idol maker. He mocks the idol. He mocks the idolater in this section of text, saying, the idol is a product of human effort. The the idol maker will take a cutting tool, he'll take a piece of wood, and he'll fashion it, and he'll hammer it, and he'll work it into shape by the sweat of his brow, and he'll get tired as he's doing so, only to be sustained by the very materials he's using to create this idol. There is a cedar which began as a seed and he nourished it by his human cultivation. The only thing that saved the cedar from falling and being burned to warm his house or to cook his scrambled eggs is the the desire of the craftsman to take a section of it and make it into a god that he can bow down to. The same log that cooked his food and warmed his house, can it also save his soul? And when the idol has been carved, he holds it in his right hand and he calls out to it, Deliver me, for you are my God. But what is he calling out to? What is he bending his knee to? Verse 19, a block of wood. That is all it is. His deluded heart has led him astray to the point where he cannot say the statue in his hand is a lie. Isaiah Isaiah here mocks the idol maker, mocks the idol mocks the idolater because it's all foolishness. The Lord reiterates this in uh, Jeremiah 10. Look at Jeremiah 10. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. 
Did you hear that? The idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. The picture is meant to display to you the idea of useless. You ever seen a picture of a scarecrow in the middle of a field while the crows and the birds are all lined up on its arms as it stands there and lined up on its head? That scarecrow is supposed to scare those birds away and it is unable to do that because it is useless. Idols, he's saying here, are like a useless scarecrow. You hope it accomplishes some purpose, but ultimately it is unable to do whatever it is that you desire. Even more, these idols, you must carry them around because they can't even walk. They can't do anything good or ill because they're nothing but wood. The idol has no real existence, and so to call out to an idol, no one hears, no one listens, no one speaks, no one pays attention. Because there is no reality behind the block of wood. So woe to them who look to idols, to mere blocks of wood and stone, and say, Awake, arise, help me. Woe to those who look to anything other than the Lord, the God of Israel, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because none of them have any real existence. But how did humanity develop such a penchant for falling down and worshiping that which A, doesn't exist, and B, doesn't truly satisfy? Since the beginning, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1, what can be known about God is plain to them, meaning humanity, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The mass of humanity throughout the world, throughout history, has known that God, is exi- God exists. And he has graciously and mercifully revealed certain attributes in the generality of creation. Two things, said Paul, his eternal power and his divine nature. They have been revealed with such a clarity that there is no one in all of the earth's history that is without excuse. Or that has any excuse. And so what does humanity do with this general revelation of God's divine power or his eternal power and divine nature? What is it that they did with what they knew about God? Romans 1.21 tells us, although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. And why is that? It's because God is God. God exists outside of us. God exists outside of creation. God is uncontrollable. Meaning we can't control him. We must conform to him. We must conform to his will. God is untamable. Meaning we can't put a bridle in his mouth like a horse and try to steer him in the direction that we would like him to go. No, we must submit ourselves to him. And since the fall, humanity has been obsessed with being like God or being gods ourselves rather than submitting to and conforming ourselves to the God who exists. We want to be the ones who are the standard of what is right and wrong. We want to be the ones who are the standard of what is evil and, and what is good. And so we as humans have had difficulties since day one submitting to the God who is the standard, who is the determiner of what is good and evil what is sinful and what is righteous. And so what did humanity do? Humanity chose the path of idolatry. Humanity chose to seek and to grope their way around rather than looking clearly at the eternal power and divine nature. 
And the result, as a result, we refused to honor him or to give thanks to him. And Romans 1.21 tells us the byproduct of that. We became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. All who refuse to thank and honor God are futile in their thinking about God and darkened in their foolish hearts toward God. And this leads to Romans 1, 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is humanity's descent into idolatry. The fundamental reason that is not that any idols have any real existence or that they have the power to do anything good or evil. No, the fundamental reason that humanity consistently, persistently chooses and walks in the direction of idolatry is because fallen humanity rejects God as He is and would rather, in our folly, in our darkness, and in our futility, shape and craft replacements that allow us to serve that which we most truly love, which is ourselves. We craft gods that we can bit tame and bridle and we tell them if sex is our god then we create a god who allows us to go into the temple and have sex if money is our god we create a god who allows us to go and get all the money in the world that we want this is human nature this is romans 1 every idol throughout history of humankind was born out of the desire to run from god and idolize our desires in our day the definition of idolatry in our time, might not, is not necessarily the carved idol in front on your mantle somewhere, but it is whatever captures your mind and your heart as an alternative to Jesus Christ, an alternative source of trust, an alternative source of comfort, whatever that might be. Whatever it is, whatever it is that distracts you from Christ, Whatever the idol is in your own life that is competing with you for, with Christ for allegiance in your heart, just know this, it doesn't listen to you, it doesn't hear you, it cannot save you, and it has nothing on Christ. Your idols won't bring true and lasting joy because it can't. It will not lead you to the wonderful halls of eternal life. The only place to look for eternal life is Christ. Christ is here. Christ listens. Christ speaks, Christ answers, Christ is real. And because he is real, you and I don't need to fear the non-existent gods of the peoples of the world. When God tells them, you stay here, they stay there. When Satan would seek to rise up, God says, you can't do anything unless it's going to further my purpose. So we don't need to fear. Instead, we ourselves commit ourselves to more closely following Jesus and to going out into this idolatrous world and teaching people to obey everything that Christ has commanded, to making disciples. Why? Because he is with us. The real God who truly exists is with us to the very end of the age. So my fellow believers... In reference to idolatry, watch yourselves very carefully. My beloved brothers and sisters, turn with full-hearted devotion to the living God.
Father, we thank you for this warning in Scripture that idols are nothing. In fact, they don't even account as for nothing. They're even less than nothing. I pray that you would help us to see and understand the gravity of avoiding idols and um, seeking with the whole of our heart to call people who are enslaved to idols and the elementary principles out of that darkness and into the marvelous light of Christ. I pray that you would allow our minds not to be conditioned by the world to be respecters of the demonic, but instead that we would see them for what they really are and do as the Apostle Paul tells us, to expose that darkness and speak the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ into it. Father, we praise you, we thank you, we honor you, and pray that you would give us the strength to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.